Legally Bound, a podcast hosted by a married couple, Andy and Katie Tricaski. Lawyers, veterans, national news personalities, parents of five crazy kids, and unintentionally comedians. Today on Legally Bound, we talk Ghislaine Maxwell, who stands convicted of sex crimes, but will that conviction stand up in court? Katie, how are you? I'm great. How are you doing? You just went in the ocean in the middle of the day um, and froze your ass off. So I'm I'm more concerned about you. I do enjoy an ocean swim once in a while. Yeah, it's a great it's a great little uh, jaunt. So Ghislaine Maxwell, uh, I think that the Epstein Maxwell case has been on people's mind to some degree for a long time. People have lots of opinions. I'm not sure how much they know about the case, uh, but. Where we are today is that Ghislaine Maxwell uh, was convicted a couple weeks ago. Uh, there have been recent revelations, though, that I think call into question big time whether that conviction stands up ultimately. Yes, this is a, such an interesting case, and it's really such a sad case, too, because obviously when you hear the name Ghislaine Maxwell, Jeffrey Epstein, all you can think about, I think, is child sex crimes, sex trafficking, all these horrific stories that we've heard, even outside of trial about the alleged victimization that people suffered at the hands of both Epstein and Maxwell, who was his, not his wife, but essentially his long-term girlfriend or associate. It's really kind of unclear what their relationship was, but there's been many kind of descriptions of it. Well, there was a weeks long trial, obviously when Epstein himself died, I'm not going to get into the speculation as to whether that was suicide or, or otherwise, uh, there was more about the case. But I don't think people really have a grasp of what happened. I think that they associate it with child sex trafficking and child sex uh, abuse and and molestation, perhaps even. Uh, Even after the trial itself, I don't have a a firm grasp on it. Maybe it's because federal trials aren't publicized uh, with cameras in the courtroom. And so it's just it's not as as juicy and meaty for the media to cover every little piece of. Oh, I think it's too juicy, actually. Oh, it's too. It's over the top. It's not it's it's not digestible. It's it's digestible, but it's very sad because, of course, you have the topic of child sex abuse. And in fact, Maxwell was convicted of five out of six of the charges of sex trafficking related to um, charges of trafficking minors to engage in sex acts. Yeah, tell us more about, I guess, really, what it was that she was put on trial for and what she was convicted of. What she was put on trial for and convicted of. And in fact, this is her first trial. She has a, a second trial for perjury that has not actually happened yet. That was kind of bifurcated from this one. But in this trial, the counts are, I'll read kind of through some of them, enticement of a minor to travel to engage in illegal sex acts, count of a transportation of a minor with intent to engage in illegal sex acts, one count of sex trafficking of a minor, uh, again, in certain years, and three counts of conspiracy that were related to those other acts. So essentially conspiracy was that she engaged with other people to carry out criminal acts. And she was convicted of five out of six of these charges. And so the question now is, 
do does that end justify the means of how she got convicted? And that's what right. we're going to talk about today. Yeah, that's that's really it. And, and we're just kind of giving the overview of, of what it was that she was convicted of. And I think generally speaking, you can summarize it as her being Jeffrey Epstein's right-hand man, so to speak, in helping him traffic underage people to his residences, some of them in America, I guess, some of them outside of the right. States on mm-hmm. an island. And what London. it was, at, 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 to some degree, he would meet these these young women, young girls uh, in their teenage years in, in different places and somehow convince them to come, I guess, move in. It wasn't that difficult. It was a lot of money involved. <laughs> money, money. Um, and, and they would come and, and it would it was right. for sex, that, really. And that is essentially what the, the charges and what the convictions are. But this is a really big but. And, and, and the thing is, before we get into the but, I want to say that with child sex crimes, there's a really big stigma attached to those allegations, not even convictions, but allegations. And that's for good reason. It's a very taboo topic. It's a horrible thing to think about that that would even be something that happens in the world, even though we all are smart enough to know that, of course, horrible things happen. But people don't want to talk about it. And if someone's accused of something like that, it can be easy to just assume that they're guilty. Like, how could you even be accused at all if there's not some truth to it. And that's where we run into some trouble here because obviously we're criminal defense attorneys. We were prosecutors as well, but we do work with sex allegations involving minors and they're very specific types of crimes. And it's something that makes people very uncomfortable, again, obviously, but we have to understand that these are still crimes that are processed through our justice system. Yeah, oftentimes the allegation is enough to to convict in most people's mind the fact that you were alleged to have done it. And so you have with Maxwell this idea, and she put up a defense that she was essentially the the fall guy for Jeffrey Epstein, that he was engaged in this activity and that she wasn't uh, the as part of it as the, the prosecutors had claimed it to be. And she put up a defense and has never really made any statements on the topic, ultimately convicted. I don't think a lot of court watchers were surprised by that, given how close a proximity she was with Jeffrey Epstein and and the fact that, that there were these under underage people. Now we're talking teenage years and, and I don't know, you you know, I don't know what she thought, but it must have been too much in her face for the jury to believe that it was anything other than obvious. It's going to be a numbers game with her because you have multiple stories from multiple victims that have a very similar overtone. And these people didn't necessarily have any connection to each other prior to giving testimony, which is a big part of how you would attack that. So that they, Maxwell's attorneys did attack the credibility of the accusers. Many of them, of course, had a history of drug use. Many of them had come from difficult situations. Many of them may have had motives to lie once this case became public or when once Epstein was back in the news. So you can try to attack. Seeking money in, in right. some regard. Sure, yes, exactly. I mean, you always can find ways to attack credibility, but ultimately she wasn't over, able to overcome at trial those those stories. And there was but, good evidence and corroboration that it wasn't just what these women were saying happened, but that there was validation that in fact they were where they say they were and they were there for there a There was some evidence time, to support this, of course. But the problem we have here is though, as soon as she was convicted, and this is a real issue, especially and this for is defense the, This attorneys. is the bombshell. This is the big thing. This is what's not being talked about in the news. And I think that it's a very big issue. Uh, and, and in one way or another, this case is not over yet. Right. After her conviction, there was a juror for some reason who 
went to news outlets and he told news outlets. Well, I'm sure the news outlets went to him first. Okay. Well, somehow they met up and the two had a conversation. Right. But I don't know. He's, he told them, and this is his quote to the independent, quote, this verdict is for all the victims, for those who testified, for those who came forward and for those who haven't come forward. I'm glad that Maxwell has been held accountable. This verdict shows that you can be guilty no matter your status. But that wasn't enough. It, this guy... Yeah, and that's not bad. I mean, I, that's, that no, sounds like not. a juror that's who was convinced general, beyond a reasonable doubt. That's a general statement about how he felt about the verdict. But the problem was he, this juror, told the news outlet that he himself was actually a sexual abuse victim and had discussed his experience during deliberations with the other jurors and felt that his story had swayed them to believe the victims in this trial. And after... There was not just him, a second juror then came forward to the New York Times and described having been sexually abused as a child also. So And it appears both reason, of them both of them failed to disclose this during the voir dire process, during the process when they were getting selected, when there were questionnaires that went out. It appears that they did not disclose this information. Right. It appears that they didn't disclose that they had been a victim of sexual abuse on the initial questionnaire. And then when, when they were brought back in in front of the judge during the second round of jury selection, uh, during a process called voir dire or voir dire, depending on where you're from, um, they did not bring this up again because it hadn't been disclosed. So there was nothing to dig into. So they, the attorneys, the judge had no reason from what it looks like to know that there was a problem. And the, this is a huge deal, especially for defense ta- uh, counsel. I mean, we... We spend so much time painstakingly going over the backgrounds of jurors who are going to sit in judgment of our clients, of any clients who are out there, of any person on trial, to make sure that they are the fairest people that aren't going to make a decision based upon anything else besides the evidence that's presented in court. Now, there's not a lot of things that can undo a criminal conviction. Uh, There's certainly not an ability to break into what the deliberations were and claim that deliberations were unfair typically. It's generally just the fact that the jury met and that they had their time to deliberate. You generally cannot inquire into what happens in the deliberation room. That's that's typically privileged and sealed and not part of something that can come up on appeal. But what we have here is that the juror themselves, potentially two of them, should have not been placed on the jury in the first place. And that is something in criminal law that if, if you can come forward and there's two elements, as far as I understand, that have to be established to the federal judge here, that this could very well be a mistrial. And those two elements, as I understand it, are number one, was it a a false statement by the juror originally? So in the voir dire or on the questionnaire itself, did they actually materially misrepresent a, a fact at issue? And then two, is that would that misrepresentation have essentially kicked them off the jury? And I think that that's the big point here. We've done hundreds of sex uh, trials with juries uh, between us and our, our partner as well, maybe even many, many hundreds of them. And it's it's not an automatic, but generally speaking, if you are the past victim of a sex crime and that sex crime affects you or impacts the way that you see the world, how you would uh, process or think about or analyze the evidence in a case, it's almost a, a 100% kick. I mean, there's very few judges that would even go beyond a question like that. And he here, we have this juror saying that it was impactful so much so that they brought it up in deliberations and helped convince other jurors to go along with their position.
position based on their prior personal experience. That is a huge no-no. I mean, this is unbelievable. It it never happens, this sort of disclosure. It's almost like bragging about this, which I don't understand what this juror was possibly thinking. I mean, I can't even imagine, even though this case was not publicized, the judge must have given them so many warnings about their, you know, responsibilities as a juror. And we should be clear— as a jury member, you can use your life experience and your common sense when you're looking at evidence, when you're evaluating the credibility of victims. You're allowed to obviously consider the ways of the world as you know them to be. But in this case, it wasn't just about that. This this juror, and it sounds like now there's two, one of whom's asked to remain be uh, anonymous, they have personal experiences that they used to essentially communicate to the other jurors that people that go through these sort of crimes or are victimized by these crimes wouldn't lie, that this just isn't something you'd lie about. And that gets back to the whole thing we always talk about in terms of generalizing instead of looking at specific evidence to see if you meet the elements that are required for conviction. So you make a great point because it, it's true. You can use your personal experiences. It's why we have juries and it's why there's so many people on a jury so that you have that diversity of experience to bring to the table. But it's why you go through the voir dire process, that que- that process of questioning jurors to see what information about their background may or may not make them a unbiased juror. And it's not just that they would have an actual bias in the case, it's even an implied bias. The idea that that juror may feel like or might not even be swayed by past events causing them to have a bias for one party or another. But if it even seems that way to a reasonable member of the public looking at the trial, that somebody like that would be inappropriate for that specific type of trial, they would uh, be excused from, from the jury. Right. And I think in this case, I think a lot of people will ask the obvious question. So what? We don't care. This is a sex offender. This is somebody that took advantage of young, often disadvantaged women and used them for sexual purposes in a very, very disgusting way, if true, if any of the evidence is true. And so do we even care? And that, of course, brings us back to just the ideas of due process in this country. It's not about Ghislaine Maxwell. I mean, she's going to potentially face justice again. Even if this is a mistrial, they will be able to retry her. This isn't going to get rid of the case forever. It's just a matter of having the right people make a final decision on it. And it's for the sake of the system. And I mean, of course, I feel like a broken record always talking about this, but I really believe that you can't allow a jury system like this to exist, where there's just an overlooking of really, really egregious misrepresentations by jurors, people sitting on cases that never should have sat there. And God forbid you are ever sitting on trial. You would really, really hope that the laws were followed to a T and that the people sitting in judgment of you were being truthful about their biases, their inelastic predispositions about the topic that you're on trial for. I mean, it's not fair. If you were victimized and you really just can't believe that anyone could ever make that up because it's such a horrible thing to go through, you're not going to be able to even give any credibility to the idea that some people do make those sort of things up. Some people do have reasons to lie. And that's not a quote unquote nice thing to say, but are we adults here or not? Because it's the truth. And people lie all the time about any given thing for no reason, for many reasons, for things we'll never understand. If you're not willing to be open to that idea on any given topic, you can't sit on that jury. 
Okay, so one of the I think we have to be clear here. What we're both saying as criminal defense attorneys, as criminal law attorneys, is that in our experience, generally speaking, people who are specifically victimized themselves by the same or similar crime are almost automatically not allowed to sit on that type of jury. Now, maybe they'd be a correct juror for a different type of case, a bank robbery or something. But if it's similar to the victimization they've had in the past and that victimization impacted them, typically speaking, it's an automatic kick or they're automatically excused. Now, there's a, many people in the, I'll call it the the victim advocate uh culture, society of folks who are pushing against that and really trying to uh, make a position that people who have been victimized in the past should be allowed to remain. And it shouldn't be something that is looked at as such an automatic kick. And And they make some points about that that I think are generally valid. That They say that uh, statistics show that one in four or, or something close to that have been victimized by sexual crimes. That's a, a lot of people. And so you're, you're removing a huge portion of our population and and really taking that away from the perspective and maybe they should be allowed to bring their perspective. True. And this is not an automatic bar. The point is you need to actually disclose the information and allow the judge and the attorneys to get into it with you because some people, of course, horrible things happen to people all the time. It doesn't mean you're not a fair person. It doesn't mean that you're not a proper juror automatically. I don't think that's true at all. For any crime. Well, that's but. the second prong of it. The first prong is should it have been disclosed, and and that's going to be looked into. And I, it looks like it certainly should have. I, I mean, mean, I think that's it seems pretty, pretty darn obvious. And but, I would hope so. If I was on trial for something like that, I would want to know: Have you been a victim of something I, like this? I, I mean, I do it's these questions obvious. all the time. It's it. You stand up and th- you ask the question forty three different ways to get at at it. The judge asks it. The prosecutor asks it. You ask it. I often ask it. I, I I'll apologize. I'll say I know it's kind of been asked in a whole number of different ways, but is there any way that you can think of that we haven't asked that question, that you've somehow been impacted by sexual violence or sexual abuse in some way, you personally or somebody close to you, something that that has impacted you in any sort of way? I I mean, you you ask it a thousand different ways because it really is the most important question in these cases to get at whether or not the potential juror can sit fairly. And I think it kind of is also... I almost hate to say it, a function of the hashtag MeToo movement to the extent that this juror or these two jurors think that, oh, hashtag MeToo, when really in reality, every case of victimization or every case of alleged victimization is is totally independent of another. Just because somebody says something happened doesn't mean it was really anything like what you went through. So to share your own experience and to say, oh, this is probably what I experienced is really unfair. And I don't think it does anybody any any favors besides looking at the evidence itself. You have to actually only base a verdict on the evidence. And again, if this juror hadn't opened their mouth, we probably wouldn't even be the wiser about right. this. Well, and that second prong, you know, I think it's going to be satisfied pretty easily, uh, although we'll see what the judge ultimately says here, because there are cases where this person could have come forward in this interview and said, yeah, this, I was victimized in, as a child. It didn't really impact me. I didn't think much about it. It's it's a truth, but it's not something that I brought up to anybody and it didn't have any impact on it. But it's quite the opposite that it seems that this juror is saying to the media that, that they did bring 
bring it up in deliberations and, and that it was an influential factor. And it almost makes me feel like, how did that happen? And I'm making this up because I don't have this information, but my imagination would be that somehow the other jurors were questioning like the likelihood of something or how the plausibility of something. And then this juror may have taken it upon himself to explain, oh no, you know, that does make sense because here's what I went through. And so why else bring that up except to say, you know, overcome other people's doubts, which I think was the implication in the interview. Certainly sounded that way. So that's where you run into a real problem because if jurors are sitting there, and I don't know, again, if this is true, but it looks like it to me, that they had any sort of doubt on their own based on the evidence and needed a push with outside information, well, that's automatically a mistrial. How could it not be? So the conspiracy theories have been thrown about on the Epstein-Maxwell uh, allegations from the second that they came out and and even before that. And so the second I heard this, I asked, is this a conspiracy somehow? Could this have been somebody who's connected to the Epstein-Maxwell uh click of, of folks or Maxwell herself with all of the resources that she has somehow getting a juror to, to flip a dirty juror somehow to have some sort of ace in the in the hole, because I think that this is a great way for her to now get a new trial here. Could this have been a conspiracy? And, and I don't think that we can quite get there because I've, I've gone down almost every rabbit hole with it. And there's too many things that uh, that they wouldn't that somebody who is conspiring with this juror to to toss the jury would have had to do in order to to make this happen with so much foresight that i couldn't that i can't quite see it working out in that that fashion but yeah. i asked the question because what what would it take a juror to to cause a mistrial how how many dollars i i think this is I the mean, this sure. is the plot of many lawyer you movies in the past definitely come up with plenty of Potentials, but if I was going to pay somebody off, I think I would do it so that my case would be totally dismissed. I yeah, don't know. So you get your I don't want to just be dragging it on to another trial because they're not going to let her get away with this. I mean, she's definitely going to go back to trial. I think if they do declare a mistrial. So at this point, it looks like the judge has set a deadline of February second for the government's response to the defense's request for mistrial. So beyond that, I'm sure there will be a hearing of some sort and then there's going to be decision made. And it's not getting a lot of publicity because I don't think people want to face the ugly truth that there's a conviction on somebody that looks like maybe they're guilty and it could be overturned because of what do you want to call it? A legal technicality? Well, and I've been, I don't know if that's, I don't think it's a technicality at all. I think it's just a lack of proof of the conviction of, of the offenses. Right. So, I mean, from what it looks like. Well, and I've been hearing that, that the prosecutors in the case are talking to the defense about potential deals in exchange for not bringing this motion or somehow dismissing this issue and not letting it hang out there. And maybe it, maybe Maxwell sees her chances at a second trial not being as great. And maybe she is in a deal position, deal making position. But it looks to me that prosecutors are scared. I certainly would be very scared when I was a special victims prosecutor. If this came out after the trial, I mean, this is almost throw your hands up in the air and say, okay, I here mean, we after go again. you go through a whole trial, a lot of times there is room for a deal because it's just such a lift to go through an entire mm-hmm. trial again. I mean, even though they can, technically speaking, I think you're right that there's going to be some discussions about how to handle this. And she is facing that second trial for perjury charges, which is completely separate, but kind of related to all of these incidents as well. And, and you know, the, the whole thing is, is really tragic and bizarre. I mean, the whole enterprise, there's got to be at least, and this is not me as a juror, this is just me as a person saying, there's got to be some truth to some of this stuff. I mean, there's a lot of bizarre behavior that was documented, whether it was minors or people that were 
slightly over the, the legal age, it's still creepy. I think we can agree on that. Whether it's criminal, I think that's yeah, the, I, I, the other question of it. We need to just for a moment tear apart kind of this idea that th- there are some people who are are skeptical of the allegations in this case that, you know, they they were there because they were getting money or they were making their own decisions. Um, we got to be very careful on this because there there is a, a group of people out there, maybe they're in their 20s and, and they're living a life that's a little bit more sex worker based where they're taking money in exchange for providing sexual services. You know, that that's a thing out there. Sugar baby sort of stuff. That's a, re, a reality a in our industry. society. But when you start involving teenagers... And I know. It, it's just, you can't, there's no excuse for it. And, and to close your eyes to it, what, why is there all of a sudden a, a 15, 16, 17 year old walking around the house? It, it, there's, Such I can't. a bizarre situation. I mean, it really is. The more information we get, the more bizarre it seems. I mean, these people with all this money, all these resources, and this is what you choose to do. It's so self-destructive, but I guess I think people think they're untouchable. Certainly seems like Jeffrey Epstein had a very specific predilection and Ghislaine Maxwell was very willing to to help him uh, satisfy that predilection. So what's your prediction? Uh, What's going to happen? Oh, I think they're going to end up getting a mistrial because there's no way that this could be withstanding the scrutiny of the judge. It's just not right. It's not right in terms of the system. It's not about Ghislaine Maxwell. It's Again, it's in terms of the fairness of the system and in terms of the fairness of the process. And that's what we have to uphold here. That's how we defend sex offenders every day. You know, people ask that question. How can you morally do that? Well, the Constitution is something that that applies to everybody, and I certainly hope that it's upheld irrespective of my personal feelings of the defendant in the case. Well, you know, in this case, I tend to agree if the facts are what they look like right now, if it is that this juror failed or or both of them failed to disclose this prior victimization where they were specifically asked about it and it would have had an impact on whether they could have sat on that panel, uh, this case is coming back and we're going to see it again. And, you know, perhaps it's called for, perhaps it's not. We'll talk about it more in the future. Until next time, we are Legally Bound.